Welcome to another episode of Bayou Chronicles. We're your hosts. I'm Crystal. And I'm Bethany. And can you actually believe the first month of 2021 is almost over? I It, it went by so fast. Like, I, I don't even understand where the time went. I know. Well, it's almost my birthday, too. It's my birthday month, which... Yay, it's my favorite time of the year. Um, But we are actually recording this episode separately, so it sounds a little bit different or sounds a little weird. It's because we are separated 20 minutes apart this time. Um, I'm currently dealing with a case of COVID. Yay. We all have cooties, and it's been interesting. So, yeah, we've never done this virtual now i guess it's virtually i don't know um but we're gonna try to do our best so hopefully we don't have to do too many this way or if we do um have to start doing them this way hopefully they don't sound as rough as this we first get one better pro- <laughs> any type of progress please for the love of god <laughs> <laughs> Um, On today's episode, we're actually going to be discussing a case from down south in Baton Rouge. So this is for our Louisiana listeners. But before we dive in, we want to remind you that you can always find us at our social media accounts. Um, Our Instagram is Bayou underscore Chronicles. And then our Twitch, our Twitter, and our YouTube is all just Bayou Chronicles. So definitely give us a listen. Um, If you haven't been able to join us yet for one of our Twitch episodes, we would love for you to the next time we do one. We haven't picked a date yet, but we definitely want to keep doing them. Um, But yeah, I don't have anything else as far as the business is concerned. So I'm going to hand it over to Bethany and let her tell you a little bit more about this week's serial killer. Alrighty, guys, let's jump into today's episode. Um, It's... We did our intro, like, uh, you know, not typical, it's kind of typical, and this episode is going to be definitely not the typical Bayou Chronicles, but I will just go ahead and let you guys in. Um, My lovely co-host, Crystal, unfortunately, has the Rona. She has the COVID. Um, Yes, she is okay. She's doing all right. Her family is recovering at home, and we thought it best um to stay separate and be safe and quarantine and continue to stay home and wear your mask people and take this seriously is not anything to mess around with but we said the show must go on we really did not want to disappoint you guys and have you miss out um on an episode so i'll be doing this solo dolo I'm kind of jacked up on Dr. Pepper because I was also sick for a little bit and I wrote most of this and did my research during a lot of fever dreams. So bear with us. We do apologize, but we really, really, really appreciate you guys' support. Um, And just know that we are 100% dedicated to having an episode out every Sunday for you guys to listen to, even if it's a mess and all over the place like this week's. But let's get into it. Um, in this week's episode, um, we are going to discuss a case that had women in Baton Rouge afraid to even leave their home, be alone, or go out after dark. That is how serious this shook Baton Rouge. 
um, women begin carrying pepper spray and constantly looking over their shoulders. It was just, it was a rough time altogether. Um, some women even began sleeping with a loaded gun under their pillow. Um, this, um, you guys know, shout out to YouTube, shout out to Amazon like we normally plug them in. You know, Crystal likes to read. She normally gets a couple of books off of her Kindle if it's um, a subject that we're researching and she can get one. And then you guys know that I like to visually watch documentaries. So I got that <laughs> snippet. You guys know I like to, you know, write down and quote weird, highlight it. And I was like, whoa, sleeping with a loaded gun, you know. Me and Crystal were talking about this and I was like, I'm pretty clumsy. She's pretty clumsy. I, even if you have your safety on, I would be afraid of sleeping that way. My great grandma used to s sleep that way. She was a, a raging Cajun woman and um, she made sure my great grandpa knew what was up, you know. So, yeah, I wrote that down, and one of the ladies in the documentary, she said that it had her so spooked. That's what she started doing. Um, but I think as women, we all know this feeling. It's just, it's the life of being a woman. You know, you kind of, you know, clutch your purse a little bit closer. You keep your keys in your hand in a way that if you need to you know, stab somebody you can, you make sure you can safely get into your car, you don't want to stay out too late at night, you want to make sure all your doors are locked at your home, especially if you're a single woman, or you're just home alone, it's just, you know, that uncertainty of being a woman, unfortunately, that's how a lot of people were, a lot of the women in Baton Rouge were feeling during this, um, and it was a serial killer that was causing hysteria, around and wasn't leaving any evidence behind and that was really the part that really had people freaked out all this stuff was going on that we're going to talk about and it, they had absolutely no idea who it was where he was coming from just and that's kind of what makes it just a little bit more creepy um and one thing that crystal mentioned to me when we talked um about this when we were doing our research and we were kind of getting our p's and q's together for me to do this solo is we both said the same thing what we're about to talk about we were comparing it a lot to Ghostface, which, as you guys know, was our first episode. A lot of the similarities. Because, um, once again, we got somebody coming in, um, tracking down women, and leaving like a ghost, not leaving any evidence. Um, that was until in the spring of 2002, which um, this is more of a curtain, a current episode that we're talking about today. A lot of our past episodes have been in the uh, early 90s, the 80s. We even talked about a little bit of the 70s. So this was in the spring of 2002, um, more, more so into the summer. Um, Charlotte, Pace, Charlotte Murray Pace, she mainly liked to go by Murray, but um, I like to go by people's first names. So I'm going to refer to her as Charlotte. She was a very young um, woman. She was just settling into a new place um, with a roommate. Um, she had only planned to live um, in the home for a few months um, because she had actually just graduated from LSU. She had a job at LSU, but um, later in mid-August, she had planned to move to Atlanta, um, where she was going to basically, you know, start her grown-up life, you know. She just graduated college and had some job um, offers in that area, so she just needed somewhere to stay until she moved. 
and this is unfortunate about what we're about to talk about. Um, because on May 29th, 2002, Charlotte moved into her new place, like I said, and just two days later, which is the crazy part, um, on May 31st, 2002, her roommate would come home um, to a scene that really nobody wants to ever see. This, I've, My heart really felt, goes out to people that have to... Um, not only, like, the loved one, the, in this instant, a roommate, but also, like, you know, the medical examiners, the detectives, everybody, the coroner that has to find stuff like this. Like, that's always the, the rough part about doing these research, um, for the episodes. Um, but Charlotte is found, I mean, she is found in, like, a gruesome, gruesome scene, from all the research I did, the detectives and the all the people that were on scene at the crime um, said that there seemed to be blood literally covering every inch of her room, which is gives me a little shiver just now thinking about it. Um, and several items were laying around her body, which they were pretty sure were used um, as murder weapons, um, and one of them being an iron that was used to viciously, um, bash in her head, um, oh my god, like, an iron is pretty heavy, it's sharp, it's metal, um, I just, poor girl, um, the detectives in the corner that worked the scene described it as being the most gruesome they'd ever seen, and I wrote down that it seems like every time we do research for an episode that the police detectives in the corners always say that. I feel like every documentary I watch says that, and Crystal was like, man, maybe we pick a lot of, like, really rough cases to talk about here on the podcast, and I was like, that seems to be the consensus because that literally is always the quote that we hear. It's the most gruesome I've ever seen in my 20 years. And I'm like, okay, maybe we should pick something tame for the next episode. <laughs> but yeah, here we are. Say la vie. Um, Charlotte's throat had also been cut and they found strange tiny holes, um, like basically puncture wounds all over her body. They weren't really sure um, how many yet until the coroner did, like, a detailed autopsy, and they weren't sure exactly what the weapon was, um, and there was also obvious signs of sexual assault, which is unfortunate, um, but Charlotte, let me tell you, she gave up a hell of a fight, there was literally, like, we are, I already said, there's already blood all over her room, but he must have caught her in the hallway, um, because there was blood, like, almost all around this house, especially in the hallway and leading into her bedroom and then all on her bedroom. And, um, she was not letting him or whoever this was take her. Her fight or flight kicked down, and she definitely picked fight. Um, the detectives were confused at first by the crime scene and who the perp, uh, that it might be involved was, because it was a little all over the place. They couldn't really pinpoint, like, a person, like, do a profile or a motive, because there's a lot of different factors that normally aren't all in one crime scene. It was a vicious attack, obviously. This was definitely a vicious attack. And he stole her wallet and her car keys, 
which was a little odd, but he obviously didn't take her car, her vehicle. It was just kind of like he was taking like his little trophies, his little mementos. Um, and this was one thing that really like bothered me about it. Cause I was like, no, um, it happened during the day on a popular road. Like I said, she worked at the campus um, and she had moved to be closer to work at the campus. So there's going to be a lot of people around. I mean, you're living very close to the campus. Somebody had to have seen something. That's what I kept saying. Oh, somebody had to have seen. They had to have seen him. Um, at least someone leaving the house. I mean, he had to be covered in blood. He viciously attacked her. Um, she fought as well, like I said. So he had to have had, like, bruises on him probably bloodied up his clothes had to be covered in blood and I was like really somebody had to have seen it but the crazy part is is they interviewed almost every single person on that street and not a single person saw anything nothing at all and that literally blew my mind it's just crazy that to think that somebody could go out and commit a crime like this and just walk out of the home and go home and nobody see a single thing. It's scary to think. Um, the coroner would finally release um, Charlotte's autopsy. Um, and it was a total of 81 times that she was stabbed. I just like, oh my gosh. It, it's, it's insane how aggressive people can be to another human being it it it's just wild to sit and think about 81 times she was stabbed and her throat was cut it just the overkill of it that takes a lot of not only time to do all that stab her 81 times and beat her and he, he like beat her all across the house and and slit her throat and rape her that takes a lot of time and energy for one human being to another. Um, and then the police started doing a little research. And um, they they kind of felt like this probably wasn't his first time doing this. Um, so they started looking into other cases. And they had found that a year prior in 2001, in September, a similar incident had occurred not too far from where Charlotte lived. Um, and the funny thing is, is it happened on the, sh on the street that... Charlotte actually used to live on before she moved to this new apartment with her roommate. So that was kind of suspicious that these two ladies had died a year apart and Charlotte used to live by her. And it was 41-year-old Gina Green. But she was kind of found amongst a completely different crime scene. It was a lot less gruesome. Um, but she was sexually assaulted as well but she was strangled to death there was no no stabbing no blood no of the other things that all, all the things the detectives had seen at the crime scene for charlotte so that kind of threw them for a loop yes they have two women in a in a pretty close proximity but it's two different um, methods of murder but the thing that was similar is Gina's wallet and car keys were also missing, just like Charlotte. So that's where they were like, okay, we're pretty sure we're dealing with the same person. Um, and they were pretty sure that whoever the killer was, he had watched both of them for probably several weeks, even months, before finally moving in to kill them. 
Um, you probably had their schedule, knew when they came home, when they were off work, you know, how to get into the home, all that sort of stuff, which is, that's scary for, to think about. Um, you know, two women, one that lived alone and one that has a roommate, but the roommate was gone at the time, so that's scary to think. The addresses and the similarities of the murders made it easy for the police to piece together um, these two cases, which was good of them that they looked to see that there was maybe some cases that happened prior, as well as finding DNA um, inside both of the women, which was great to have at least something that they could maybe run through the system and see, or at least have it on file for when maybe they do find somebody later on down the line. But the police of Baton Rouge were, they were starting to get a little worried. You know, they have two women. They were like, uh-oh, you know, do we have a serial killer on the loose? Do we, you know, try to not cause panic? Well, yes, first off, yes, you should try not to cause hysteria because people are already going to freak out. Um, and they quickly just wanted to find the person for both Charlotte and Gina's murder. I mean, Gina's murder had already been, it's already been a year now that um, they still don't know who killed her, and now they're finding this second woman, Charlotte, and it's just like, um, we need to do something immediately. However, their worst fears came true when another crime scene unfolded a few months later in July. So Charlotte was found in May, and now in July they're, they are unfortunately finding another crime scene. But yet again, this crime scene was nothing like the police had already investigated with the other two murders. Once again, it was different. It just seems to keep changing. Like, this guy can't make up his mind. He's erratic. He's just all over the place, not planned out, not thinking about it. This time, the victim's husband, Byron Kinnamore, returns home to find his wife, Pam Kinnamore, is missing. And the only thing that they can go off is a very small amount of blood on their bathroom floor, which is a little odd. Um, of course, you know, me and Crystal, we're weird. We overanalyze stuff. We're like, well, like, how much blood are we talking? Like, paper cut bloods, you know, stab one time blood. Like, we're, uh, we overthink it. Like, literally, just, just, it was a small amount of blood. Okay, let's move on. Um, Pam is nowhere to be found inside the home or outside the home. They go on a search and they cannot find her any, anywhere. There was no signs of an attack. There was no signs of a forest break-in, which that, all three crimes, there was no sign of a break-in, which was really odd to me. Um, but, and then the small amount of blood. And I don't know why they included this, but they did. An overturned house plant. In my home, that wouldn't be that crazy i have two um two sons six and three and two dogs so an overturned house plant that's like typical tuesday afternoon but they put that in the report and i felt obligated to annoy you know we like weird little details in our notes it looked as if pam was doing some self-care because um she had started to run a warm bath um and she was also, there was also a sign that she had, like, maybe, um, doing, like, a mani-pedi, mani-pedi. She had, like, her nail polish and stuff out and some of her other things. And she was about to take a bath when she was obviously, um, kidnapped and attacked. 
And a few days pass, and there's absolutely no, like, they have nothing to go on. Um, no calls, no nothing, no signs, only that small amount of blood on the bathroom. They had nothing to go on. And no idea if she was somewhere alive or already dead. And then her parents, specifically her mother, her mother talked out a lot. She reached out to every news outlet and everything I researched. Pam Kinnamore's mom was the loudest and most outspoken and she would do anything to find her daughter alive. And she offered up a $75,000 reward for any information regarding, wow, you know, we like to mispronounce words on here. It gives character to the episode. Um, Any information regarding Pam's disappearance. Um, But unfortunately, four days later, um, Pam Kinnamore's body would be found in the whiskey bay which is like kind of like a little bay area and it has like a bridge going over it um just through the town if you've ever been to that part of baton rouge um pam had large lacerations across her body and approximately three to five deep stab wounds which is it seems to be the deaths have been different but it seems to be the consensus is he definitely likes to attack to attack women with some some type of knife um which is just scary it gives me shivers um once again there were signs of rape um and this time and this time they were able to get a better um semen sample which was um taken for testing so that's that's a plus there finally they're starting to get a little more and more um, but it really started to set in, um, for all of Baton Rouge in the surrounding areas that there may be a serial killer out on the loose attacking young women. And that's, how is that not going to cause mass hysteria in the town? Um, the, the police... The police department knew they were dealing with something, and they they something that was probably going to turn into something big. Obviously, they didn't want it to, and they had to immediately get a better jump on it um, so they could kind of keep everybody's mind at ease. They immediately sought out the help of the uh, Baton Rouge FBI um, department in town, And they had a few agents come in and work with them, and they began piecing together a profile. They didn't have a lot to go off of, but anything was better than nothing at this point. They have three women murdered and raped, um, and the latest one being thrown out in a a different area than um, her home. So it's progressing. They had an idea the type of person they were dealing with, but they really had nothing to go off of, like they said. And up until this point, they had absolutely no witnesses. Nobody had ever seen anything. Even when Charlotte was, you know, murdered in broad daylight in the middle of the day um, on a street that's, you know, known for a lot of college kids to live on and be walking around and doing things outside. Um, But... When Pam's body was found, a woman had called um, into the tip line, and she reported. And I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know what makes this 
what the way it is, but she's called into the tip line and reported seeing a suspicious white pickup truck driving around that area of the Whiskey Bay late at night around the time that Pam's body would have been dumped there. What makes a pickup truck suspicious? Like, only thing is, like, maybe if it had, like, a little rust, if it was, like, beaten down, but, like, what if that's, like, somebody's great-grandpappy's truck and it was passed down and you're calling the tip line saying it's suspicious? Anyways, I put, you know, I put that in my notes. Um, but that's an extremely common vehicle. Like, it would be nearly impossible for the police department and even the FBI to, like, track down every single... Can you imagine how many white pickup trucks there are in the state of Louisiana, specifically in Baton Rouge? Like, it would, it would take nearly... I mean, forever to figure out. And that might person might not even be connected. It's just absolutely... I, I mean, I respect her for calling in. You want to... If you see anything, at least call in. But, yeah. Anyways. And something else funny. And remember, my humor is a little bit different. We are talking about stuff that's a little bit morbid. And I'm here making jokes about it. That's just my humor. Um, one of the documentaries that I watched... Um, some of the town people that, you know, drove white pickup trucks had bumper stickers made that read, I am not the serial killer. And I, (laughs) I had to pause the documentary and I was laughing so hard because it it reminded me of when, um, people are like, you're not a cop, are you? If if you're a cop, you have to tell me you're a cop, right? And they're like, no, I'm not a cop. Like, okay, yeah, he's... He's definitely not. That was genius. Talk about marketing. Like, that was... it. That's that's genius. I am not the serial killer bumper stickers. Um, I mean, those guys are definitely not it, right? They definitely can't be the serial killer. Um, but something that I found really, really odd doing research for this, and this just shows you how desperate the, the, police, the police department of Baton Rouge were to find this killer... Um, they began testing random people on the street for DNA, for their DNA, asking them if they could take a cheek swab and have it tested. Um, and I'm on, I'm like honestly surprised that some, some men on the street went with it. They gave their DNA and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, why? I mean, I mean, I, That was just odd. I've never heard of that. They literally canvassed people for like an entire day and just took a bunch of DNA samples. But I've just, I felt like they were just so desperate. And fast forward a few days, another body was found. But this time it was, it was completely different. It was 20 miles outside of town. Um, and not matching the other three victims, this actually, so all this was going on in Baton Rouge, and the one that we're about to talk about, this one happened 20 miles outside in, um, Zachary, um, and if you know, it's really not that far away, um, it's completely different, like I said, it's 20 miles outside of town, it's the different, it's a different type of victim, but they are convinced that it has to be the same killer, and I fully apologize if I butcher this name. I am so, so sorry. I am the worst with names. Just 
speaking English in, in general, I guess. I just don't know how to say words. Um, but the victim was Trinisha Dene Combe. She was 23 years old, and she was snatched from a local cemetery in Zachary while she was visiting her mother's grave. And doing research for this case, this part really touched my heart um, because not only was she the first African-American victim, but to be not only visiting a loved one's grave, but to be at the cemetery visiting your mom's, you know, the person that brought you into this world's grave and have somebody kidnap you and later rape and kill you is all I'm going to say is there's a special place in, in hell. And yeah, this was the out of all of it this was rough to research um but not only were the deaths completely different now the race of the victim was changing like i said um Trinisha was african-american and all the other victims were white so they're they they're trying to put this profile together but man it's just jumping all over the place the victims the victims changing the crime scene's changing where he's kidnapping the women is changing now he's kidnapping women and zachary which is outside of town it's just all over the place and once again there is no leads or evidence and the only thing this guy is leaving behind is a dna sample but they don't have any eyewitnesses there's nothing else to go on um the case seems to just go cold they just at this point they feel like this serial killer is just getting away with it and they felt extremely helpless until on March 13th in 2003, so a year later, uh, a fisherman at Whiskey Bay, yet again, Whiskey Bay seems to be his, his spot, um, found the body of who was later identified as Carrie Lynn Yoder. Um, desperate for this to not happen yet again, the police and S FBI start searching for cases that maybe the victim had survived and escaped and had maybe given, uh, given a report to the police department, maybe in a different town, you know, this one happened in Zachary, maybe it happened somewhere else in the surrounding area, um, which honestly, I, f I wish they had done this a little sooner, you know, I wish they had maybe like, instead of waiting for another woman to die i know they did their best but you know i kind of wish it was a little just a just a tad bit sooner um but they did find one case that felt pretty similar to the murders and um they finally found diane alexander let me just say before i talk about her this woman is so strong um anyways let's get into it i'm very i'm very glad that they found her but they found diane alexander that had been viciously beaten and raped um eight months prior to them finding yoder's uh body in the whiskey bay um this time the suspect didn't have a chance to finish the job um because while she was being raped and beaten uh, repeatedly punched in the face and the stomach while he raped her um thankfully 
I mean, it's thankfully, but it's also not thankfully. Um, Diane's son came home from school and walked in on it. Um, and Diane reported a man had knocked on her door and asked to use her phone. So she went and grabbed her home phone and a phone book. Um, you got to remember, this is back in the early 2000s when a lot of people had cell phones. Um, and she gave him the phone and the phone book. And he went back outside and he knocked on it again. And she assumed he was just giving, you know, her phone and her phone back. back. Um, but he forced himself inside the home and began just punching her over and over and over again simultaneously while raping her and um something that she said and put in her report um is that and this gave me chills it's giving me chills now is he leaned in close to her and he said i've been watching you and that literally just takes away all sense of being safe in your home like a lot of times when this happens to people um even if it causes bankruptcy or they have to leave everything inside the home they will leave their home and go somewhere else because you no longer will feel safe in your home um but thank goodness her son came home um when he did um but it's also i felt very bad for him because he was a young boy and he had to see what was being done to his mom, but it's also um, a godsend because he, sa he saved his mother. Um, and it, it allowed them, the FBI and the police um, of Baton Rouge, to know that the profile they had was, like, way off. I mean, they were, like, dead wrong props th to them for, like, doing their best, but they were way off on this profile. Um, the witness had... The witnesses had been wrong calling in and saying it was a white man because they also had a lot of other tips besides the lady that called in about the pickup truck. They had several say that they saw a white man driving around in the area in a white pickup truck, um, which was not the case. That doesn't fit the profile at all. And the DNA from Diane's rape case matched perfectly to all the other DNA samples from the other murders of the Baton Rouge serial killer attacking young women. So things are finally starting to fall in place. Um, Baton Rouge Police Department receives a call from a nearby town, Zachary, which, like I said, that's where um, Denisha was um, murdered, um, visiting her mother's grave, um, of a suspect that may match their case that they had arrested the week prior um, for a peeping Tom incident, which, like, yuck, dude, like, come on, really? <laughs> Peeping Tom, um, and his name was Derek Todd Lee. Um, he had a history, um, a juvenile history, and a, like a slew of cases. Like he just had like a rough, a rough teenage years. He was always getting in trouble, just hanging out with the wrong, wrong crowd. So they already had him, had him in the system, and already had his DNA file, DNA on file, which I thought was odd. Um, because, like, if they already had it on file and they had the, those, like, four DNA samples, wouldn't they have run it? But then I had to remind myself this was the early 2000s, so, I mean, that probably, it was probably, you know, they were doing their best. Um, but they finally brought, um, 
that sample that they had on file and compared it and confirmed that it was in fact a match and Derek Todd Lee was the Baton Rouge serial killer. I mean, I mean, there it was. Broke the case. They found him. They know him now. After not having any witnesses, after having witnesses call in and give false information, and they've made a profile that was absolutely wrong. They find somebody that survived, and now they have his DNA, and they've compared it, and they know who it is. Um, but something that really blew me absolutely away was that I found out that this guy had not only a wife. I mean, that's not. I mean, that's that's fine. But he had two small children at home. Two small kids. I just... It always blows my mind when we do research like this and we talk about this on the podcast. When men can do this, and women, I won't discriminate. And they just go home like nothing happens to their wife and their kids. Until they decide to leave the house again and kill somebody else. And then go right back home and, you know, hi daddy. Hi, honey. It just blows my mind. And when they um, went to execute the uh, arrest warrant at the home of the Lees, they found that it was completely empty. Um, And they also found that Mrs. Lee, uh, his wife, had withdrawn their kids from school the week prior. So probably when the Zachary Police Department arrested him for the... Uh, peeping Tom incident, he probably knew that they would run his DNA through the system and that it would get connected to those other ones. Um, but I mean, when you're going around raping and murdering women and leaving your DNA inside of them, like, come on, you gotta put two and two together. Eventually, something will happen. Um, so you know your husband killed all these women. I mean, your husband had to have tell, told you. Why else would you just withdraw your kids from their school they're young and leave your house and move somewhere else you gotta she's gotta be putting it together um and there's just like there's just no way as a mom that i would ever put my murderous husband above my children i would have done something to get my children out of that situation but we can't victim blame we can't blame her we don't know what she was going through at the at the time. Um, that's just how I personally feel. And they obviously start questioning anybody related to uh, Derek. And they come across um, his sister. And she confirms that they had moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, dude. So if you're innocent and you haven't done anything why are you moving to a different state taking your kids out of school um not telling anybody you moved except for your sister no explanation and um lee's sister lets them know that she had given him a cell phone so he and her could stand contact and like shout out to having gps's and phones because thanks to that cell phone they were able to track down where Derek todd lee was at um the little apartment they were staying at in atlanta 
in um, the Baton Rouge Police Department called the Atlanta Police Department and they got together and they made their way to Atlanta to hopefully arrest them. Um, which they did. They made their way and like oddly enough, I always find it odd. I mean like they put up some kind of fight. Sometimes they get shot and they're dead. Um, but in this instance they do use the GPS. They track them down to the exact location. They go in... Um, serve the arrest warrant, they take them in handcuffed, no fight, no nothing, and that's absolutely crazy to me. I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way, and sometimes it does. But I kind of, I kind of feel like he just didn't want to struggle and just didn't want to attempt it. He knew the jig was up and he couldn't hide from it any longer. And he probably didn't want to put his wife and kids in any more danger, if he even cared. Um, but they, they took him in. They arrested him, obviously. And they began to interview them. And his interviews were very, very odd. From the ones that I could watch and all the research I could find from them um, describing it, especially one of the female FBI agents that did most of his interviews, she kind of compared him to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which, and I felt that was a pretty spot-on um, comparison because one moment he was like very well mannered yes ma'am no ma'am very polite very responsive whatever she asked she would he would answer and then it was like bam a, a switch flipped and then you know Mr. Hyde came out and he was very flirtatious and very sexual and very like prideful and oh I know I'm very confident I'm very sure of myself I have no remorse for killing those women I'll do it again if I get out that it was like it was like he just was like flipping all over the place very very much I like a sociopath um attitude that's the vibe I got, and that's the vibe she described, and it was spot on. And I think they were smart by sending in a female um, agent. She's the one that actually worked the whole case um, and started the profile and tweaked it when they kept getting information because they knew, obviously, women are his target, and he'd probably open up and feel more, like, you know, sure of himself if he was interviewed by a woman. So that was smart on their part. Um, and it was very, like, interesting to s see some of the interviews and also see how she described it. Um, and after they interviewed him, you, you know, you typically go on trial. So he did, um, obviously go on trial. I mean, this was the crazy part. I mean, it's a no-brainer. But, um, once on trial, it took less than two hours for the jury to find him guilty i mean like it was like unanimous they like all went in there and they slapped guilty on a piece of paper uh read it out to the judge and he was like yeah you're right and that was that i mean what else they have the dna they know he did it he was literally flip-flopping no remorse said he would do it again said he was strong and knew he could overpower women and that's why he chose him and so it was basically like 
they were the jury just knew so it was pretty quick deliberation um and Derek Toddley was sentenced to death by a uh, legal inje- injection by the state of Louisiana um it's not exactly sure how many women Lee murdered Um, But they strongly believe his killing spree began as early as 1992. There is a book um, that was written by um, one of the ladies that I referred to in the beginning of the podcast that um, was sleeping with her her, uh, her Glock under her pillow, fully loaded, ready to go. Um, she, um, I plan on reading, um, buying it. I know Crystal, you know, she's crazy about buying books about the podcasts we do. Um, she put this awesome, 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 um, and I'm sure either on Instagram or Twitter, Twitter, I feel like we never say Twitter right here on the podcast, me or Crystal. Well, pretty sure I'll find the link to it for anybody that wants to look it up. She put this awesome like diorama like timeline chart together on cold cases that happened in the area that had the same mo and description of these murders that Derek Todd Lee was convicted of that were never solved so she says there's at least 20 to 40 women he possibly could have murdered that were never solved starting as early as 1992 i mean she did her research um and for some of them they'll probably never know um because in 2016 before he could be um sentenced to death um derek toddley did pass away from some unknown medical issues i try to do more research on it i really don't care i'm gonna be honest i never really care how the people die um they chose to take people's lives so why should i i mean i know they're a human being i'm just being 100 percent honest i don't care how the dude died but he did die in 2016 and they just said that he had a lot of health complications um And he was in and out of the infirmary inside um, the prison. And then finally he passed away when they moved him to a hospital at the hospital. Um, So, yeah. And that, it's literally for a decade, this man stalked and killed young women in the state of Louisiana. And that how he, that is why he was given the name the Baton Rouge Serial Killer. And that is absolutely insane to me. I know this episode has been like literally so dysfunctional, not our normal. It was all over the place. Our intro's all over the place. Um, because we actually tried to film this um, remotely and it just was not working out. So we were like, I'll just do it. Let's get on this Bethany train and we'll just ride it all the way through. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening. You know, we don't like to carry on at the end and in the beginning. We want you guys to listen to the episode while you're driving, while you're working, working out, whatever the heck you're doing, and be done with it for the day. Get your little taste of true crime and get on with life. We know it's busy. Um, I throw mine on when I'm doing dishes or 
laundry or whatever else I'm doing in this mom life. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening. We do apologize for how crazy this episode was. Thank you so much for everybody that, that tuned in for our Twitch stream. Um, yeah, and just have an awesome, awesome, awesome week. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time.